This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Before I answer that question, <laughs> sure. every time I get asked this question, I end up being a headline or something. So I'll say this. Me personally, I'm never joining a team of stars. I would rather beat them than to join them. What's cracking? Welcome to episode six of the Jim Rohn podcast. Time is absolutely flying and I've got another tremendous episode for you this time. We have Trailblazers all-star Damian Lillard. We have writer, producer, director, and creator of the hit TV show Billions, Brian Koppelman. Two amazing interviews that I cannot wait to get to. A quick note off the top, though. It is difficult to even begin to get our arms around what has happened in this country since we dropped our last pod only a week ago. Sunday night's horrific shooting in Las Vegas. The president continuing his beef with the NFL. Music legend Tom Petty passing away. And then on the other side, we did have an amazing week of sports. This podcast went to number one on the iTunes chart. And Romageddon hit the radio airwaves on Friday. Somehow, some way, I made it through that Friday program, even with the bum smack, the personal appearance smack, the rat family, and the infamous Toby in Houston call. With regards to the terror in Las Vegas, I know that most of you do not come to this podcast to get a sermon from me. You come here for great conversations and maybe even terrible voicemails. But as you hear in the conversations that I have with Damian Lillard and Brian Koppelman, listen to the passion for life that both of them have. Listen to what drives them both. Both Dame and Cop hit on very similar themes in our conversations. They both said essentially, you only get to do this once. And in terms of it being too soon to have the kind of conversations that many people don't want to have, that's exactly the reason to have them. And if now isn't the time, then when is? Listen, while I've got a moment, I want to talk to you about Upside. If you travel for business, you know it's a game of wins and losses. Popping open an overhead bin and finding it empty, that's a win. Sleeping through a wake-up call, now that's a loss. Buying your business trip at Upside.com, that's not just a win, that is a triple win. Number one is Upside has the absolute best available prices for flights, hotel, and rental cars. Win number two is that Upside will reward you with a gift card to places like Amazon.com every time you buy a business trip. And number three is the amazing six-star treatment that you'll get from Upside's customer service specialist, who they call Navigators. And Upside Navigators are instantly accessible 24-7 by voice, chat, email, or message on the Upside app, even reaching out to you with useful info to help you avoid a problem before it happens. And I'm going to start your Upside six-star treatment right now. Go to Upside.com. Use my code ROAM. You'll get a minimum $100 gift card to Amazon.com. That's code ROAM for a minimum $100 gift card to Amazon.com when you buy your next business trip at Upside.com. Upside.com. You deserve a better business trip. Minimum purchase required. See site for complete details. And now it's time, yet again, to get to your voicemails. 
And as much as I genuinely regret plugging in this machine and giving you my number, I do have to say, you earned it. At least this week you did. Because it's no secret, this voicemail is nothing more than the super bait to get the radio audience over to this podcast. The clones, my listeners, they're easy like that. You promise them a taste of themselves, and they will follow you anywhere, like the starving dogs that they are. So, I set up this answering machine for them to wear out and abuse in the hopes that it would get them listening to the new podcast. And it worked. And in nobody's surprise anywhere, it is their absolute favorite thing about the pod. Forget the deep conversations with A-list guests. The clones want to hear Brett Favre impressions and Bohica blasts. But you know what? I am not here to chastise or bust you up. Not now, not this week. Yes, many of you are juvenile and sophomoric and drag this show down as opposed to lifting it up. But despite all of that, you clones have proven time and time again that at go time, nobody goes like you. And in less than 48 hours of me asking you to support this pod, you went out and you made it the number one podcast on iTunes for the category this past week. I said it in the jungle and I'll say it right here. The clones are the most loyal, most rabid, most well-organized listeners in the history of sports talk radio. It was true two decades ago and it's true today and I appreciate the hell out of it. I appreciate you clones very much. So with all of that said, I think that I would just do exactly what you want me to do, and that's press play and just get the hell out of the way. You have 15 new messages. First new message. Hey, Jim Rome. Gary Gaietti here. Been a long time. Might be a little cheesy for me to leave you a voicemail, but uh, just wanted to congratulate you on the podcast being number one. Message deleted. Next message. Romy, it's Kirby, the UPS driver in Utah. Just got finished listening to episode five. I listened to all five of them. Bob Myers was great. The holy cow. Butter was awesome. That was a great interview. Thanks, Romy. Bye. Message saved. Next message. Josh and Flo. Have to say, Romageddon was awesome. Was on a family trip back from Disneyland and tuned in. First segment. Wife, all she hears is bum smack. And the kids are in the back talking about bums and cranks. Message deleted. Next message. Jim, this is Chris Albiero, Senior Vice President of Programming, CBS Sports. We're going to need to meet with you tomorrow morning in New York. Message deleted. Next message. Hi there. Um, this is Andy from Rockland, California. And um, my husband is making me call you. How's that for Friday night? I love you, Jim. I'm going to make chocolate chip cookies for you. Message saved. Next message. GMO, Ernie from Oceanside, just waking up from a great night. But I was wondering, since you played the Toby call, do you mind playing the Slump Buster call? Because... Message deleted. Next message. I found a simple life. What's so simple? No. When I jumped out... Message deleted. Next message. Message deleted. Next message. Hey, Jim. This is Bodie. My wife had to get her teeth done, so that's the only day that the veterinarian was open. I just want to check in with you. That girl to be calling about Sidney Crosby's luscious ass? Hey, hey, the only girl that has a luscious ass is my cousin. 
Message deleted. Next message. I've been listening to you since 97, man. At, at first, when I heard you the first couple of times, I thought you was just a loudmouth white boy. But then I heard your rant on soccer, and I instantly liked you. Man, your podcast is awesome. Message saved. Next message. Hey, Jim. Um, I don't know who else to call, man, but uh, um, I just went in my son's room and lifted up his mattress, and uh, I found a soccer ball, man. <laughs> message saved. Next message. Hello, James. I watched a little college foosball this weekend, and... Well, James, I guess we could say that Troy proved to be LSU's Achilles heel. Message saved. Next message. Hi, Jim. I'm Lauren. And you know what? I'm just taking a quick break right now because I'm trying to re-sober up and then get re-drunk in another 20 minutes. Okay. Well, I love you. Bye. Message saved. Next message. Romy, it's homie. Uh, across the street over here with the Sparrow, and we're having lunch, and he just wanted to leave a message for you, so here you go. Right. Message deleted. Next message. Hey, Jim Rome. Rob over here at Fort Hood, Texas. I'm getting ready to deploy. It would be amazing, despite our differences in politics for one Sunday if all 32 NFL teams uh, would stand there at the national anthem interlocked arm to arm and say despite our differences we're teammates not only just on our team for the NFL but in life and that we love each other despite those differences message saved you have no more messages first off let me start off with the one redeeming call that I had from the hundreds, and there are now several hundred every single week. I want to talk about my man, Robin Fort Hood. Rob, nice job. Way to elevate the conversation. Most of all, thank you for your service. Thank you for that voicemail, and it was good to hear your voice. The rest of you, the rest of you, how do I put this? Holy shit, you were terrible and drunk. Really, really drunk. Gary Gaetti did not call my voicemail. Neither did Bodie, who I would imagine... His cousin does not have a, quote, luscious ass. I don't know, Bode. Maybe she does. It's neither here nor there. And Josh in SLO, you, my man, are not going to win the Father of the Year award. Bad enough that you're playing Romageddon in front of your wife, but your kids in the back seat and they're dropping bum smack? That's on you. That's not on me. And no, the Mark Gray slump buster, that thing's just not happening. Not if we go to number one again. Not if we go to number one forever. So stop asking. Enjoy the voicemail while you still have it, because nothing is forever, especially this part of the podcast. In fact, I'm going to have to do a deep, deep dive on this. I'm not sure this thing comes back next week. Tune in and find out. Listen, these days, you can get practically everything on demand, such as our podcast. Listen whenever you want, when it's convenient for you. So let me ask you, why are you still going to the post office and dealing with their limited hours? When you can get postage on demand with Stamps.com. Anything that you can do at the post office, you can now do right from your desk. As an example, the holidays are coming up. My wife, Janet, is all about the Christmas card. We send out hundreds, literally hundreds of Christmas cards, and there's no way we could do it without Stamps.com. I'm going to print my own postage. I'm going to do it when I want and do it at home. 
trust me, with the holidays coming up, you should do the exact same thing, and you'll thank me for it. Right now, use my name, Rome, for a special, special offer. A four-week trial, which includes postage and a digital scale. Do not wait. You want to go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in my code name, Rome. Once again, Stamps.com. Enter Rome. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office ever again. I know I won't. Stamps.com. On now to Damien. In a league busting with superstars from LeBron to Steph to KD to The Beard to Russ to Kawhi to CP3 to Melo to Kyrie, it is way too easy to forget about Damian Lillard. That all-star point guard tucked away in the evergreen trees of the Northwest in Portland. But do not get caught sleeping on Dame. Dude's got crazy game and an even crazier story to go with it. And in our conversation, we get into all of it. From Oakland to Ogden to Oregon and how he got from one place to the next. And do not even think about putting this man in a box. He's a lot more than just a basketball player, and he will be the first to tell you. In fact, this Friday, he's dropping his second full-length hip-hop album under the handle Dame Dalla. So let me get into our conversation with the brand new single off the record. This is Run It Up featuring Lil Wayne. I probably first started writing some rhymes like middle school, early middle school. Me and all my my friends, we used to write little raps and me and my brother used to pull up instrumentals at the house and just start writing and, and rapping and stuff like that. So it's been a little, it's been a hobby of mine for a long time now. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, when you first, when you want to put a beat under a verse for the first time, like how did that process go? Did you make your own or did you get some help from somebody and then get some collaboration from there? I mean, usually you start off with the beat. You know, I listen to a bunch of beats and uh, just go off of whatever vibe I get from the beat, you know, or whatever direction I want to go in, and then I write after that. I never just write a verse and try to stick it to a beat. I think it's best when it's the, the opposite. I mean, you know how it is now. When you're an athlete that puts out music, there's always going to be some risk involved. People yeah. are always looking to, tr- to try to crush you or to say that, hey, look, you're a player, you're not an artist. Did you feel any of that when you started releasing music? Um, I think when I first started putting out music uh, often, like two summers ago, people were saying, you need to be in the gym. You know, you guys got eliminated in the second round. You know, it was a lot to be said about it. Um, just because people was, I guess, concerned about the time that I spent in the studio. But my thing was always I spend even more time in the gym. You know, the, that's the first thing I do every day. And each time we get into the season, is never I improve each season. You know, I go out there and I do my job and I do it well. So... You know, I, I kind of ignored, you know, every time somebody has something to say about it. You know, I would imagine there's got to be a party that's thinking, hey, look, I'm getting my work in. I mean, you can tell yeah. by watching me play, right? I'm getting my work in. Why are you so concerned about that? Did you feel like that on any level? I mean, I, I felt like that, but it was more of a, I looked at it like, you know, some people just, they don't want to see you um, grow. They don't want to see you expand and do other things. You know, if you play basketball, people will say, you know, you make a lot of money, um, you're famous for playing basketball, stick to that, you know, but we got a lot of time on our hands, and, you know, some of us are capable of doing other things, and I have other interests, you know, I'm not just a basketball player, that's just what happens to be 
uh, my primary job. That happens to be why a lot of people know me, but that doesn't mean that that's the only thing I'm interested in or the only thing that I'm, I'm capable of doing. So um, we only get to only get to live this life one time, man. So it's it's important to you know to to do what your heart desires, especially if you're in position to. Right, so it's not the only thing you're interested in, and certainly you've got some other views, which we'll get to in a minute. But yeah. you're from Oakland, and it's a town that produced Hammer, Del the Funky, Homie Sapien, Mac Dre, Too Short, to name a few. Which Bay Tupac. Area guy? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so who was your Bay Area guy? Who was your MC when you were growing up? Um, if I had to pick one, um, I'd probably say Too Short. You know, I think just because he was. He was tapped into like older Oakland when I was a kid. Like the older, like my parents, um, you know, was around too short. Too short was a little younger than my dad, and um, you know that was kind of where he got his start. But then when I was in high school, he was still tapped into the younger crowd. Like he still made music, but he had old hits too that that your parents might know. So I would say too short. All right. Now, when if there's anybody out there who's still not taking Dame Dollar's project seriously, you've got Jamie Foxx, you've got Lil Wayne on a few of your tracks. Talk about how that came together. How did you get those guys to commit? Um, just from reaching out, I mean, I had known Jamie Foxx for, for a few years. Um, I had met Wayne uh, maybe a year before I, I put my album out where we was in, like, contact with each other. Um, but I, I just kind of reached out to people that I was a fan of, you know, and people that I wanted them to, to hear my stuff and I wanted them to respect me as an artist. You know, I didn't want them to just say, oh, you know, there's an NBA player and, We'll do a song with them. You know, I felt like the the people that I reached out to, they would, they would only want to attach their name to something that was respectable. So that was that was just my main thing. All right now, Wayne's on the new single "Run It Up," which is yeah. out right now. It's part of the brand new full length that's going to drop this week called "Confirmed." Yeah. Did yeah. you guys track that together, or did he send in his part? How did that come down? Um, I actually sent it to him. Um, Scott Storch. I was in the studio with Scott Storch. He made the beat. Um, and also Verse Simmons, who wrote on the song on the for the hook, and um, we came up with with that. I did my verse, I laid it down, and I sent it to Wayne. I already knew that I wanted to have Wayne on it, and um, he sent it back. And then a few weeks later, I actually met him in the LA studio, and we just you know just messed around, listened to some music a little bit. But um, he sent his verse in to that song specifically. All right, so like when that came back, when he sent his back, what did that feel like? And then when he got in the studio, what was it like to work with him? I mean, when he sent it back, it was, you know, my expectations with him is always high. You know, I just, I'm just appreciative of the fact that, you know, he never just sent me a throwaway verse where it's just like, I'm just doing it to do it. He sent me quality verses, and I, I really appreciate that. But getting in the studio with him, you know, I didn't actually record when I was there. I just watched him, you know, listen to beat after beat, go in the booth a few times, just see how he operate. Um, you know, and it was impressive. You know, he was really, really sharp. Um, you know, I, I had heard a lot that he was a musical genius, and it definitely came off that way just being in the room with him. Yeah, so most of all, what did you learn from that time with him? What was your biggest takeaway from being with him in the studio? Um, I mean, when a lot of the beats came on, he was automatically saying, like, rapping lyrics to himself. Like, and if he rapped something, he was going in the booth and he was laying it down regardless of if he was going to keep it or not. He was going in there and he was just in the booth saying his stuff and... You know, just going from there. So, I mean, that was something that I wouldn't do in the past. You know, in Milwaukee last year, the Bucks fans were chanting SoundCloud rapper when you were on the line. I'm curious what you were thinking at that time. I mean, were you pissed? Did it make you laugh? Or were you like, these fools don't even know what they're saying because SoundCloud is actually known for breaking underground hip-hop artists more than anything else. So they may think they're getting over, but they're really not. 
Yeah, I mean, like during the game, I, I think I missed it during the game where I just kind of wasn't paying attention to it. I thought they was chanting something to their team because it wasn't clear in the arena. And then I saw a video of it, and they were saying SoundCloud rapper, and I just thought it was kind of funny because, like you said, SoundCloud's broken a lot of underground artists. Um, it's a great platform for up-and-coming artists to get their music out there, and I've used it when I first started putting music out. So, I mean, it, it was nothing for me to be ashamed of. Um, if anything, it was... Uh, fifteen to twenty thousand people acknowledging the fact that they knew I rap. So, <laughs> I mean, that was good news for me. You know it. You know it. So obviously, yeah. touring is really not a possibility right now with your basketball schedule. Yeah. But you did jump on stage for your first show as Dame Dollar last summer yeah. at the Crystal Ballroom in Portland. What do you remember about that? What was that like? I mean, it was just a it was a different high. You know, it was a great feeling. I I did it on my birthday, and uh, I had a lot of my family there. It was a lot of it sold out. Um, in like 45 minutes, the show sold out. It was a couple thousand people. Um, but the thing that stood out to me the most is I hadn't, at that time, I didn't have an album out. I had only had SoundCloud release songs, just freestyle type songs. And I was on stage, and if I stopped singing the songs, I put the put the mic to the crowd, and they actually knew the words. Oh. And that was kind of what inspired me to just continue to push forward as a as an artist. You know, I was that really was a good feeling for me. I bet that felt great. Now, listen, you're used to the big stage. You want yeah. the big stage. You live on the big stage. But were you nervous when you hit that stage for the first time? Um, I would. I wasn't really nervous. Um, you know, I just didn't know. I just didn't know how to command the stage. I wasn't sure what what it was going to be like because I had only been on stage one time and I rapped on with one of my cousins on a song that I rapped with him. And I just was up there for a few minutes and left. But. Um, I wasn't nervous. I didn't know what to expect. You know, I just I saw a lot of a lot of Damian Lillard jerseys in the crowd. Um, a lot of people that I was excited, so that kind of took away from the, the possibility of me getting too nervous. Hmm. You know, you're not using profanity. Now, the thing is, profanity, man, it works. I mean, Damian, shit, I do it here all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you not doing it when you know it sells and it could work for you? Uh, I mean, it might be able to work for me, but I don't. It's really not my personality. To, you know, go around and just every other word be a cuss word or to have to say cuss words to get my point across. So um, that and is, and also just the fact that I know a lot of youth uh, follow me, you know, from Instagram to Twitter to just my following as as a whole. You know, I know a lot of that is youth. You know, they take a, a liking to my story of being underappreciated and kind of um, rise into a, a level of stardom. You know, I know that I, I have a lot of young people following me, and it's a lot of words that I could give them uh, through my music that that just doesn't require cuss words. Um, you know, it's it's just what is what it's turned into. Respect. I've got nothing but respect for that. Yeah. Listen, one more thought about that. Are you looking to write when you write? Are you looking to write and track? You know, so-called club bangers, or are you in it for something else? Are you in it for a different reason? No, I think. Um, a lot of people that, you know, say I'm trying to get a club banger, I want, you know, this kind of song or that kind of song, they're trying to make a hit so then, you know, their career can explode or they can make a certain amount of money. Um, and for me, I, I've made plenty of money as an athlete. And, um, that's with my team and through endorsements. So, you know, music is a, just strictly a passion of mine to where, um, you know, I'm not trying to use say, oh, I need to be in the club. I'm just trying to put out quality music. You know, some of my favorite artists, you know, J. Cole, uh, Kendrick Lamar, Nas, you know, they, they've they had great careers. Nas is a, one of the best ever. J. Cole and Kendrick will be named one, 
you know, two of the best to, to ever do it. And you don't hear a lot of their music in the club. You know, they putting out quality music and they got huge, huge fan bases that's going to be around, you know, in 20 years, you know, the, the, with the timeless music. So that's kind of what I'm more of a fan of. What do you think of uh, Kendrick's new album? Oh, I thought it was great. I still listen to it. I love it. I love all his albums. Mm-hmm. All right, so let me ask you about some basketball before you go. I mean, shortly after Golden State beat or beat you guys in the playoffs, you told ESPN that you were obsessed with finding a way to get through those guys. Yeah. Was that some heat of the moment stuff, or did that stay with you the entire offseason? No, I mean, when I say things, I it's not just – I don't let my emotions um, take over me. You know, when somebody asks me a question, I, I just answer it from, from how I feel. And – you know, I, I think everybody should feel that way. You know, you got guys um, teaming up because they want to be, they want to have enough firepower to beat Golden State. And everybody knows that, you know, they're going to be one one of the best teams in the league, if not the best team, um, off of the talent and the way that their talent plays together and the, the brand of basketball that they play. So um, it's clearly on everyone else's mind, too, that, you know, that's what they want to get done. But me, I want to, I want to, be the one to do it. You know, everybody kind of shows them the respect um, of being that top dog, which they deserve. They've earned it. Um, but for me as a competitor, I want to want to knock them off that. So that's kind of what what I'm obsessed with sure. <laughs> as a player. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's why you're in it. So what yeah. about this notion of super teams? Super teams, are they good or are they bad for the NBA? I mean, I don't know. I mean, you can't say it's good or bad. Yeah. You know, it's competition, and that's that's one thing that won't change. And, um, you know, guys want to team up and guys want to, you know, get themselves a better chance to win it all, then, you know, it's not illegal. It's not against the rules or it wouldn't be done. So um, I don't think it's good or bad, but, you know, for any, any competitor, I think it just raises the level of, you know, of your competitiveness. Hey, listen, I don't begrudge anybody. If you're a free agent and that's where the market is set up and you want to take a shot someplace else, like you feel like I want to live in a different town or I want to go work in a different town, I, I'm all about that. I've got no issue with that whatsoever. Yeah, but yeah. if you were to put yourself, say, in Kevin Durant's shoes, say you were in OKC for like eight years and you did everything you possibly could, and then you got a shot to chance to go or a chance to go to a juggernaut like Golden State, would you personally have done what he did? Before I answer that question. <laughs> sure. Because... Every time I get asked this question, I end up being a headline or something. So I'll say this. Kevin Durant can make whatever decision he wants to. He's a, If he's a free agent, that means he's free to go wherever he wants to go. Me personally, I'm never joining um, a team of stars. Like, I, I just could never do it, especially one that's won a championship and um, has just eliminated me. Um you know, I I just couldn't see myself doing it. I would I would want to beat them. You know, I wouldn't want to beat the the top team that just went seventy three and nine or whatever they went. I wouldn't want to join that. I would I would rather beat them than than to join them. Now at the same time, I'm sure you would tell me, hey, look, I, we got something good going here. I've got CJ here. I've got some other teammates I respect and admire. We have a yeah. good thing going here. And in fact, I spoke to him last week, and CJ was talking to me about how. He reached out to Paul George and Carmelo Anthony. I know you did the same thing. Did you feel like you had a legitimate shot at either one or both of them coming to join forces with you? I did. I felt like we had a, a chance to get uh, PG. Um, and I, I thought, you know, we were to the point where we were very close to getting Melo. But 
I mean, it, it it is what it is. They didn't land here, and um, it's not personal. You know, it's they ended up somewhere else, and it happened to be on the same team. But you know, like you said, I'm happy with what we have. I'm happy with you know playing alongside CJ and Nurk and um, Evan Turner and all our guys that we have here. And we gonna when we get on the floor, we're gonna put our best foot forward, and we're gonna see how it goes. You know, we we always gonna step out there and feel like we got a chance to win. Listen, is there something about Portland? And the Blazers that free agents, potential free agents, don't know, but you want them to know about? I mean, I think people think about Portland and they like, man, is who goes to Portland or what's? And for me, I'm from Oakland. You know, I'm from the Bay Area, so um, I've lived in Utah and um, now living in Portland, and I love it here. You know, I stay here year round. It's a, you know, whatever you're looking for, you can find it here. Of course, it's not a New York City or L.A., but, you know, it's a it's a quality city, a great place to live, a great place to have a family. Um, but most importantly, these fans here, you know, the the one thing they care about that's dear to, to everyone's heart in this state is the Portland Trailblazers and the support shows. So, um, you know, we basketball players, so in a basketball environment, we want it to be A1, and I think that's what it is here. Now, there were reports that you want to come in the season at 190 pounds, and you've gone full-blown vegan, yeah. and you've dropped five pounds, Damien, in a month. That's not easy for anybody building muscle every day in the weight room. Are you still vegan, and what's that been like? Yeah, I am still vegan. Um, you know, it, in the summer when I decided to, to go vegan, I was trying to get my plan weight down to 190 to be lighter, um, easier on my joints, easier on my feet. I had some some foot issues over the past two seasons. And um, I got I'm all the way down to 191 right now. So um, started at 202 in the middle of the summer, and you know I worked my way down 11 pounds. So I feel great. Um, it's going well. Um, it's a lot easier when you have a chef cooking the food for you because it's not it's not as convenient as going to Wendy's or something like that. You know to to get a vegan meal. So um, and fortunate for me, Portland has a lot of great vegan restaurants. So. I mean, it's been working out for me. So you feel like once you hit that number, might you go back to what you were doing before, or do you feel like this is going to be a long-term thing? No, I can see it being a long-term thing because it's not it's – not, the hard part was um, the break-in, you know, just giving everything up. And now I'm to the point where I, I eat what I eat. And, um, you know, it's not – it doesn't taste bad. You know, it's stuff that I, I get satisfaction from eating. I'm not just eating nasty stuff to be healthy. You know, I've, I've – learn more and I found you know stuff that I like so I mean it's going smooth I could I could stick to it hmm. All right, before I let you go you know you and I started the conversation and you were saying look I, I'm an athlete and I got a lot of passion for that but I can do other things yeah. I have an interest in other things you know which brings me back to like something we've been talking quite a bit about on our show what is your reaction to the whole stick to sports and just play the game crowd you know that whole you're lucky to be doing what you're doing we're really not interested in what you have to say so just entertain us I mean I know you've heard every version of that and even more what do you think when you hear that and how does that make you feel I mean it's that's unfortunate because you know who are, who is anybody to tell us we lucky to be where we are we work we earn this you know millions and millions of people um as children they want to be NBA players. They want to be NFL. They want to be in the major leagues. And only a certain amount of people actually can get that done, you know, based off of a lot of hard work, a lot of time spent, you know, a lot of a lot that we have invested in in this career. And 
uh, we get to, to make it here because of what decisions we made and time that we spent. So nobody can take that away from us. You know, we, we did that. You know, that's credit to our, um, our parents for giving us, you know, the right, the right tools, you know, the right height and the right length and athleticism and stuff like that, but also how they raised us, you know, the character, the foundation they built to allow us to be the kind of people that we were that gave us a chance to be professional athletes, um, you know, but, a lot of us are educated as well. We smart, you know. We can do other things. You got guys that want to act. You got guys that want to rap, produce. Um, guys that might want to be a politician. They might want to be a trainer, a doctor, whatever they want to do, a mayor, anything. If that's what they decide to do, then that's what they decide to do. But nobody's telling people, you know, work one job. If somebody has two jobs, I mean, they have those two jobs for a reason. So the same should go for us. You know, we you can't tell us. Only play basketball. Don't worry about anything else, you know, because our careers may last 12 years. If you're lucky to be Kobe Bryant, 20 years. Some guys get three years on their rookie deal and they're done. And when it don't work out for them, then what? When you get hurt, and then what? You know, so, I mean, it, it's unfair, but, you know, a lot of the people that say those things are people that are, are bitter, you know, maybe about their own situation, which is also unfortunate, but, you know, we had a right to do whatever we please. In other words, don't tell us what we can and can't do. Don't tell right. us how to think. And then on top of that, what do you make of the president spending as much time on football and basketball as he is? I mean, it just don't make sense to me. You know, I think it's much bigger issues than, um, you know, guys um, protesting and, and taking a, a knee during the national anthem of the football games. Obviously, the reason that they're taking the knee is a big deal. But there's things going on across the country in the streets, um, things that needs to be addressed that hasn't been addressed. Um, you know, and to talk about basketball and football, um, you know, it's just it's, it's crazy to me that, that that's been the, the topic of discussion when there's so many – so many more issues um, that haven't been addressed. You know, finally, in, in terms of things going on in the streets, you had your fifth annual Damian Lillard Brookfield picnic on September 9th in East Oakland, yeah. and that's where it all started for you. But I would imagine when you go home now, you grew up there, you probably saw a lot of things in the streets when you were growing up and probably didn't process it or give it a lot of thought. When you go home now and you see these things in the streets that you're talking about right now, yeah. what do you think? I mean, it's... When like growing up, I you know I was around a lot of things that I I knew I knew what it was, and then some stuff I got older and I was like, man, you know that's how it was. I didn't even know that this meant that or that meant this. You know what I'm saying? So um, now that you're an adult, you know a lot of things come back to you and you have a better understanding for it. But um, coming from there and being an NBA player, I also realized the impact that I I could have on a lot of the kids there. I, I realized the um, responsibility that I have to, to give hope um, and to show people the way because a lot of times they don't have the resources, they don't have the um, the guidance to help them go the right way, you know, uh, opposite of what's right in front of them. So, um, again, it's sad to see, but I understand uh, the role that I play in, in in making it better and, you know, my responsibility in it. You know, I wonder, a youngster came up to you, maybe uh, he was seven, maybe he was eight, and he said, quote, are you really from Brookfield? Yeah. yeah did, did it make you kind of laugh or was it kind of sad? What did you think when you heard that? I mean, I really wasn't sure how to react to it because, 
like if I, me being from that neighborhood, if there was ever anybody from that neighborhood that made it to the NFL or the NBA or anybody, I would know. I would be proud. Like Dave, he was from my neighborhood. Any opportunity I got, I would mention it. And, you know, the fact that this kid really asked me was I from there and, you know, I'm probably the most famous person. I actually am the most famous person to ever live in that neighborhood. So it was just like, it just show you how, you know, maybe they don't have a TV at home. You know, maybe he don't have a cell phone. Maybe he don't get on the Internet. He Maybe he just has no idea. He's probably heard my name, but he, you know, a lot of the, the adults that lived in that neighborhood and had kids in that neighborhood that I played with, you know, have moved away because of, um, gentrification and um, couldn't afford to to live there anymore. And you know, there's not as many kids outside, so you're not at at you know other people's houses anymore and and learning about them. So it's just different, you know. And it, you know, I couldn't be mad at them, um, but it was just definitely something that that uh, opened my eyes up. Mm. Last thought then too. I mean, there have been some amazing ballers from Oakland. I can mention any number of guys. But let me ask about one guy in particular. I was at UC Santa Barbara when Brian Shaw went there. He was a legend at UC Santa Barbara because we just didn't have that kind of rep. I'm curious, what kind of rep did B. Shaw have as a baller and a guy in that neighborhood? I mean, not, not specifically your neighborhood, but in Oakland. What was he thought of? Uh, I mean, everybody always had a lot of love and respect for B. Shaw. You know, I remember being younger and a lot of the the names you would hear, you would hear Jason Kidd. You would hear Antonio Davis. You would hear Gary Payton. Um, you would hear about all the Bill Russell. You would hear about you know all of the main names that that anybody would say, you know. But my dad always mentioned B. Shaw, and you know just the the person that B. Shaw was, the route that B. Shaw had to go, going to a small school. Um, I think he didn't. I don't think B. Shaw played varsity until maybe his junior year or senior year. Um, just under under appreciated, you know. Never not mentioned all the time. Um, and, like, that's who, out of all of them, that's who I, I've got the, the strongest relationship with is B. Shaw. Um, you know, so he, I mean, just he, he deserves a lot more credit than he gets as a guy coming from Oakland and, and being in the NBA. I love hearing you say that. I really appreciate that you've got that kind of respect for him. Yeah. All right, Damien, so, like, when's the second album drop exactly? My second album, Confirmed, is coming out October 6th. Um, I'm excited about it. It's going to be uh, levels up from the first one, so I'm I'm really proud of the work we did. We got some good features, some great production, and um, you know it's a bigger push behind this one. So hopefully, you know people people really uh, like the music. Damian Lillard, Dame Dalla. If you've got a problem with that man, that's not on him. That's on you. Just like if you've got a problem with Brian Koppelman, that's not on Cop. That's on you. Because I've known Brian Koppelman for a long, long time. Back to when he and his creative partner, David Levine, were taking the world by storm after Rounders kickstarted the entire poker explosion. And since then, every time our paths have crossed, I have left the conversation smarter than when it started and always ready for the very next one. I finally tracked Brian down in New York on the set of his hit show, Billions. And in the chaos of show running a smash TV series, he found the time to let loose on the events of the day. The life choices he's made that led him to Hollywood and his love for Jimmy Connors and the U.S. Open. Ah, man. I've been so looking forward to having this conversation with you. I mean, the... 
the news out of out of Vegas, the tragedy does put a damper on the conversation, I think, in a way. Obviously, today I'm sure you're dealing with it as you think about all this stuff. Um, but I have to say, um, as you know, I'm a huge fan of yours and uh, know you a little bit, and so I'm excited to, to talk to you. Ryan, you are the best. It is so good to hear your voice. I'm so glad we could finally do this, and I've been thinking about you for a long time and obviously watching you very closely. I'm so glad we could spend some time. And, you know, you're right because as we're starting this, we are taping this on a Monday afternoon, and it's less than 24 hours after the Las Vegas shooting. And I don't want to spend all of our time together talking about that, but I do want to ask you, Brian, as an artist, as a writer, as a director, what kind of thoughts do you have about what happened? You know, it's devastating. I mean, my first thought, and it's probably thoughts 1 through 20, are just for these people. And I just turned to David Levine, my partner on Billions and lifelong best friend, and I was like, Man, you think about the callous indifference, the life that this fucker had who, who pulled the trigger. And you think of these 50 people who were killed, all the relatives of those people. You could just cascade it out and understand that to do something this monstrous is beyond the pale. Jim, it's not really something we can even comprehend, the mind of somebody who would do something like that. And then... Listen, as a liberal Democrat and as somebody who's looked at this stuff for a long time, I'm not an expert, but I do think that semi-automatic weapons are too easy to get. I wish there were some way the country could rally around that, you know, um, without just immediately thinking, hey, these people want to take all our guns. It's just tragedy after tragedy occurs. And if you are um, a thinking person, you have to at least put on the table this question. And the question is, what would the what would our country look like if it were harder to get these weapons that can cause this kind of damage in this short a time, right? Nine-second bursts that end up with 500 injured and 50 dead. To me, that's just common sense to engage in the conversation. Again, I'm no expert, and primarily, um, I'm sad, and, and when you're sad, you, you I'm sad, and I'm, you know, I want to solve a problem. I, I would love to try to figure out a way to solve the problem. I, I imagine that your thoughts aren't that far from 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 where I am. No, Brian, they're not. They're not. I mean, there's certainly, there's something wrong here. I mean, I don't, I don't know how many times I've said thoughts and prayers go out to, and then had to <laughs> insert the name of a place where multiple people were shot and killed because something happened like this in a school or a movie theater or a club or just out in public. I mean, there's something wrong here. There has to be a conversation. Brian, let me ask you this. I mean, you've got kids and I've, somebody brought this up on my program and said, what are we supposed to do? Can I send my kids to a festival like this? Can I send my kids to a concert gym? What are you telling your kids? What are you telling your family? I mean, what do we do? Do we say you can't go there? Do we say that you can't go there? There's nothing to be worried about when there clearly is something to be worried about? What's the conversation you're having with your family? It's a, yeah, I mean, that is a really fascinating line, line of inquiry, right? The, the short answer that you want to say is, well, you can't it's such a glib phrase we all say, right? The terrorists can't win, so you can't restrict um, where you go and you can't allow people. Even though this guy, you know, I think this is an act. Um, I, I, you know, to me, he terrorized all these people. But in, in, in general, I don't want to restrict their, their freedom of movement. My kids are probably older than yours, 21 and 17. So I, I can't, you know, what am I going to say? I can advise and, and counsel. But my 21-year-old, he's a college senior, but he's already um, – working and he travels sometimes and uh of course i worry about it but the truth is you and i we've gone to a million events you've covered a million events i've gone to them i've been in them uh and i don't want to shy away you know look las vegas you think about las vegas and the impact that that place has had on my work my partner and my work that's a place that that has um you know 
fired up some kind of crazy dream in me 25 years ago or however long ago, more, and has always been this uh, kind of um, magic in my ima- I know that the real Las Vegas and the grime and the grit of it, but in my imagination and in our work, you know, it's such an alive, romantic place of infinite possibility and an incredible uh, opportunity for cons and fun grift and, you know, all the stuff that's been in our movies. And I'm, I'm heartbroken about it. You know, I guess one of my kids said they wanted to go to Las Vegas tomorrow. Um, like you always do as a parent, even when they say they want to go to the corner store, right? You just kind of like hold it. You go, oh, sure, because you don't want to give them your right, – you don't want to pass your own neuroses onto them. But then at home, you're, you're like counting down the minutes till they arrive safe. That's... I mean, you still live in California, right? Yes, I do. I do. So does it freak – are your kids old enough to drive? Yeah, so I'm getting, Brian, now my oldest son, Jake, is a junior in high school. He's got his license. He's got a car right now. But, yeah, I mean, he just went to a concert in Los Angeles. He just went to a UCLA huh. football game. So yeah. he's in that thing right now. And he, he does these things, and they're incredible opportunities and moments for him. And I don't want to take that away. But, you know, to your point about what you and David have done in Las Vegas, it's so true. I talked about it on the show, and I think that it resonates because although you never want something like this to happen anywhere to anybody at any time, we all identify with Vegas because we've all been there so many times and have had such great memories. But you look at your life and your career and what Vegas has meant to you, I could certainly see how that resonates with you and David. It does. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, you know, um, from when even in 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 Rounders, our first movie, we reference it as the the Mecca, you know, of this stuff. Even the movie takes place in the East Coast. I mean, that's where Matt wants to go, because it is, in a way, a holder of so many of a certain kind of dream. And it changes uh, over time. Plus, like you, I have good friends who live out there. And again, I don't want to make it geographical and I don't want to take this whole conversation to this place. But 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 to ignore the fact that underlying this conversation is a uh, heavy sadness and a heavy, you know, this thing I've been feeling since this guy got elected, which is this underlying kind of a- anxiety in the country, which is how are we going to muddle through this without tearing each other apart? Look, I, my feelings on Trump don't matter, but I see our country so the most divided and the lines drawn the most clearly that they've ever been. And again, it creates a kind of uh, heaviness, I think. I'm sure you hear it all the time uh, in, in the people that you interact with. Nobody, none of us, not me either, none of us feel seem like we can have a reasonable conversation anymore. It's hard. It is very hard. I don't think there's any question about that. I want to talk to you about Billions because it's been an absolute yeah. smash on Showtime. It's a brilliant program, in my opinion. You and David Levine obviously can pick very carefully what you want to take on, what projects you want to work on. So what inspired this show, and what was it about the subject matter that interests you? Yeah, David and I have long been fascinated with by this world um, of billionaires and of United States attorneys because— uh, the U.S. attorney has just this incredible amount of power and uh, ability to uh, choose what cases they want to take on and what cases they don't. And billionaires are like nation states. You know, they move through the world in a way that very few can. And we wanted to, you know, we had access into this world. We've been thinking about it for a long time. And we've always, throughout our career, loved worlds, insular worlds that kind of had a language of their own and a customs of their own and a culture that was clearly defined and not one that most people can see into. And this show allows us the opportunity to dive into that world, to work with these staggeringly great actors, right? And 
to um, be able to put anything that we're thinking about or that we've seen in the world or that we've read or that we've watched um, out there into the mouths of these characters. And Showtime has given us this incredible amount of creative freedom. We make exactly the show that we want to make um, and uh, with exactly the people we want to make it. It is, no doubt about it, the, the creative high point of our career. You know, we've, I would say if you look at Rounders and Ocean's 13 to talk about these Vegas-ish things, gambling world, our movie Solitary Man and this, um, it, it's, it's really in- incredible to us that we've gotten to uh, tell these stories. And, and I would throw, if you're a sports guy, I mean, I would throw the Jimmy Connors documentary we made in there too, which is another example of looking at uh, a world and a kind of character that we seem drawn to over and over again, the kind of person who has a tremendous amount of, of sort of uh, desire to self-determine the path of their lives and who doesn't want to live by ordinary um, rules. And, you know, in, in, in some odd way, I think you can look at a bunch of our characters, including Jimmy Connors, as cut from similar cloth. Well, I think so. Connors is one of my favorite subject matters. But I wonder, if this is the creative high point, I mean, obviously a lot of that has to do with the subject matter, a lot of that has to do with the people you're working with, a lot of that has to do with having a great partner to work with, because you know that if you don't have the right partner, it changes the show. But here's something, Brian, I'm really curious about. What about the making of the show. How much of this has to do with the fact that you didn't actually pitch this show to Showtime or anybody else? If you didn't pitch it, why didn't you pitch it? And if you didn't pitch it, how did it get sold? Yeah, we didn't pitch it. We wrote it. We just decided to write the pilot. And um, because we'd gone through this experience, and look, everyone in their lives has had various professional disappointments and highs and lows, and you being in the industry you're in, understand this shit more than anybody, right. uh, how this stuff all works. You put your dreams into something, and sometimes it goes great, and sometimes... Uh... Before I answer that question, <laughs> sure. every time I get asked this question, I end up being a headline or something. So, I'll say this. Me, personally, I'm never joining a team of stars. I would rather beat them than to join them. What's cracking? Welcome to episode six of the Jim Rohn Podcast. Time is absolutely flying, and I've got another tremendous episode for you this time. We have Trailblazers all-star Damian Lillard. We have writer, producer, director, and creator of the hit TV show Billions, Brian Koppelman. Two amazing interviews that I cannot wait to get to. A quick note off the top, though. It is difficult to even begin to get our arms around what has happened in this country since we dropped our last pod only a week ago. Sunday night's horrific shooting in Las Vegas, the president continuing his beef with the NFL, music legend Tom Petty passing away. And then on the other side, we did have an amazing week of sports. This podcast went to number one on the iTunes chart and Romageddon hit the radio airwaves on Friday. Somehow, someway, I made it through that Friday program, even with the bum smack, the personal appearance smack, the Rat Family, and the infamous Toby in Houston call. With regards to the terror in Las Vegas, I know that most of you do not come to this podcast to get a sermon from me. You come here for great conversations and maybe even terrible voicemails. But as you hear in the conversations that I have with Damian Lillard and Brian Koppelman, listen to the passion for life that both of them have. Listen to what drives them both. Both Dame and Cop hit on very similar themes in our conversations. They both said essentially, you only get to do this once. 
And in terms of it being too soon to have the kind of conversations that many people don't want to have, that's exactly the reason to have them. And if now isn't the time, then when is? Listen, while I've got a moment, I want to talk to you about Upside. If you travel for business, you know it's a game of wins and losses. Popping open an overhead bin and finding it empty, that's a win. Sleeping through a wake-up call, now that's a loss. Buying your business trip at Upside.com, that's not just a win, that is a triple win. Number one is Upside has the absolute best available prices for flights, hotel, and rental cars. Win number two is that Upside will reward you with a gift card to places like Amazon.com every time you buy a business trip. And number three is the amazing six-star treatment that you'll get from Upside's customer service specialist, who they call Navigators. And Upside Navigators are instantly accessible 24-7 by voice, chat, email, or message on the Upside app, even reaching out to you with useful info to help you avoid a problem before it happens. And I'm going to start your Upside 6-star treatment right now. Go to Upside.com. Use my code ROAM. You'll get a minimum $100 gift card to Amazon.com. That's code ROAM for a minimum $100 gift card to Amazon.com when you buy your next business trip at Upside.com. Upside.com. You deserve a better business trip. Minimum purchase required. See site for complete details. And now it's time, yet again, to get to your voicemails. And as much as I genuinely regret plugging in this machine and giving you my number, I do have to say, you earned it. At least this week you did, because it's no secret, this voicemail is nothing more than the super bait to get the radio audience over to this podcast. The clones, my listeners, they're easy like that. You promise them a taste of themselves, and they will follow you anywhere, like the starving dogs that they are. So... I set up this answering machine for them to wear out and abuse in the hopes that it would get them listening to the new podcast. And it worked. And in nobody's surprise anywhere, it is their absolute favorite thing about the pod. Forget the deep conversations with A-list guests. The clones want to hear Brett Favre impressions and Bohica blasts. But you know what? I am not here to chastise or bust you up. Not now. Not this week. Yes, many of you are juvenile and sophomoric, and drag this show down as opposed to lifting it up. But despite all of that, you clones have proven time and time again that at go time, nobody goes like you. And in less than 48 hours of me asking you to support this pod, you went out and you made it the number one podcast on iTunes for the category this past week. I said it in the jungle and I'll say it right here. The clones are the most loyal, most rabid, most well-organized listeners in the history of Sports Talk Radio. It was true two decades ago, and it's true today, and I appreciate the hell out of it. I appreciate you clones very much. So with all of that said, I think that I would just do exactly what you want me to do, and that's press play and just get the hell out of the way. You have 15 new messages. First new message. Hey, Jim Rome. Gary Gaietti here. Been a long time. Might be a little cheesy for me to leave you a voicemail, but uh, just wanted to congratulate you on the podcast being number one. Message deleted. Next message. Romy, it's Kirby, the UPS driver in Utah. Just got finished listening to episode five. I listened to all five of them. Bob Myers was great. But holy cow, but it was awesome. That was a great interview. Thanks, Romy. Bye. Message saved. Next message. Josh and Flo. Have to say, Romageddon was awesome. 
was on a family trip back from Disneyland and tuned in. First segment, wife, all she hears is bum smack, and the kids are in the back talking about bums and cranks. Message deleted. Next message. Jim, this is Chris Alviero, Senior Vice President of Programming, CBS Sports. We're going to need to meet with you tomorrow morning in New York. Message deleted. Next message. Hi there. Um, this is Andy from Rockland, California, and um, my husband is making me call you. How's that for Friday night? I love you, Jim. I'm going to make chocolate chip cookies for you. Message saved. Next message. Jim, Ernie from Oceanside, just waking up from a great night. But I was wondering, since you played the Toby call, do you mind playing the Slump Buster call? Because... Message deleted. Next message. I found a simple life. was so simple? No. When I jumped out on that road. Message deleted. Next message. Message deleted. Next message. Hey, Jim. This is Bodie. My wife had to get her teeth done, so that's the only day that the veterinarian was open. I just want to check in with you. That girl to be calling about Sidney Crosby's luscious ass? Hey, hey, the only girl that has a luscious ass is my cousin. Message deleted. Next message. I've been listening to you since 97, man. At, at first, when I heard you the first couple of times, I thought you was just a loudmouth white boy. But then I heard your rant on soccer, and I instantly liked you. Man, your podcast is awesome. Message saved. Next message. Hey, Jim. Um, I don't know who else to call, man, but uh, um, I just went in my son's room and lifted up his mattress, and uh, I found a soccer ball, man. <laughs> message saved. Next message. Hello, James. I watched a little college foosball this weekend, and... Well, James, I guess we could say that Troy proved to be LSU's Achilles heel. Message saved. Next message. Hi, Jim. I'm Lauren. And you know what? I'm just taking a quick break right now because I'm trying to re-sober up and then get re-drunk in another 20 minutes. Okay. Well, I love you. Bye. Message saved. Next message. Romy, it's homie. Uh, across the street over here with the Sparrow, and we're having lunch, and he just wanted to leave a message for you, so here you go. Here you go. Message deleted. Next message. Hey, Jim Rome. Rob over here at Fort Hood, Texas. I'm getting ready to deploy. It would be amazing, despite our differences in politics for one Sunday if all 32 NFL teams uh, would stand there at the national anthem interlocked arm to arm and say despite our differences we're teammates not only just on our team for the NFL but in life and that we love each other despite those differences message saved you have no more messages first off let me start off with the one redeeming call that I had from the hundreds, and there are now several hundred every single week. I want to talk about my man Robin Fort Hood. Rob, nice job. Way to elevate the conversation. Most of all, thank you for your service. Thank you for that voicemail, and it was good to hear your voice. The rest of you, the rest of you, how do I put this? Holy shit, you were terrible and drunk. 
really, really drunk. Gary Gaetti did not call my voicemail. Neither did Bodie, who I would imagine his cousin does not have a, quote, luscious ass. I don't know, Bode, maybe she does. It's neither here nor there. And Josh in SLO, you, my man, are not going to win the Father of the Year award. Bad enough that you're playing Romageddon in front of your wife, but your kids in the back seat and they're dropping bum smack? That's on you. That's not on me. And no, the Mark Gray slump buster, that thing's just not happening. Not if we go to number one again. Not if we go to number one forever. So stop asking. Enjoy the voicemail while you still have it because nothing is forever, especially this part of the podcast. In fact, I'm going to have to do a deep, deep dive on this. I'm not sure this thing comes back next week. Tune in and find out. Listen, these days, you can get practically everything on demand, such as our podcast. Listen whenever you want, when it's convenient for you. So let me ask you, why are you still going to the post office and dealing with their limited hours? When you can get postage on demand with Stamps.com. Anything that you can do at the post office, you can now do right from your desk. As an example, the holidays are coming up. My wife, Janet, is all about the Christmas card. We send out hundreds, literally hundreds of Christmas cards, and there's no way we could do it without Stamps.com. I'm going to print my own postage. I'm going to do it when I want and do it at home. Trust me, with the holidays coming up, you should do the exact same thing, and you'll thank me for it. Right now, use my name, Rome, for a special, special offer. A four-week trial, which includes postage and a digital scale. Do not wait. You want to go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in my code name, Rome. Once again, Stamps.com. Enter Rome. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office ever again. I know I won't. Stamps.com. On now to Damien. In a league busting with superstars from LeBron to Steph to KD to The Beard to Russ to Kawhi to CP3 to Melo to Kyrie, it is way too easy to forget about Damien Lillard. That all-star point guard tucked away in the evergreen trees of the Northwest in Portland. But do not get caught sleeping on Dame. Dude's got crazy game and an even crazier story to go with it. And in our conversation, we get into all of it. From Oakland to Ogden to Oregon and how he got from one place to the next. And do not even think about putting this man in a box. He's a lot more than just a basketball player, and he will be the first to tell you. In fact, this Friday, he's dropping his second full-length hip-hop album under the handle Dame Dalla. So let me get into our conversation with the brand new single off the record. This is Run It Up featuring Lil Wayne. I probably first started writing some rhymes like middle school, early middle school, me and all my my friends, we used to write little raps and me and my brother used to pull up instrumentals at the house and just start writing and, and rapping and stuff like that. So it's been a little, it's been a hobby of mine for a long time now. Yeah, I was going to say, when you first, when you want to put a beat under a verse for the first time, like how did that process go? Did you make your own or did you get some help from somebody and then get some collaboration from there? I mean, usually you start off with the beat. You know, I listen to a bunch of beats and uh, just go off of whatever vibe I get from the beat, you know, or whatever direction I want to go in. And then I write after that. I never just write a verse and try to stick it to a beat. I think it's best when it's the, the opposite. 
I mean, you know how it is now. When you're an athlete that puts out music, there's always going to be some risk involved. People yeah. are always looking to, cr- to try to crush you or to say that, hey, look, you're a player, you're not an artist. Did you feel any of that when you started releasing music? Um, I think when I first started putting out music uh, often, like two summers ago, people were saying, you need to be in the gym. You know, you guys got eliminated in the second round. You know, it was a lot to be said about it. Um, just because people was, I guess, concerned about the time that I spent in the studio. But my thing was always I spend even more time in the gym. You know, the, that's the first thing I do every day. And each time we get into the season is never – I improve each season. You know, I go out there and I do my job and I do it well. So, you know, I, I kind of – ignored you know every time somebody has something to say about it you know i would imagine there's got to be party that's thinking hey look i'm getting my work in i mean you can tell by watching me play right i'm getting my work in why are you so concerned about that did you feel like that on any level i mean i i felt like that but it was more of a i looked at it like you know some people just they don't want to see you um grow they don't want to see you expand and do other things you know if you play basketball people say you know you make a lot of money um you're famous for playing basketball stick to that you know but we got a lot of time on our hands and you know some of us are capable of doing other things and I have other interests you know I'm not just a basketball player that's just what happens to be uh my primary job that happens to be why a lot of people know me but that doesn't mean that that's the only thing I'm interested in or the only thing that I'm, I'm capable of doing so um we only get to only get to live his life one time, man. So it's it's important to you know to to do what your heart desires, especially if you're in position to. Right. So it's not the only thing you're interested in, and certainly you've got some other views, which we'll get to in a minute. But yeah. you're from Oakland, and it's a town that produced Hammer, Del the Funky, Homie Sapien, Mac Dre, Too Short, to name a few. Which Bay Tupac. Area guy? Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> so who was your Bay Area guy? Who was your MC when you were growing up? Um, if I had to pick one, um. I'd probably say too short, you know, I think just because he was he was tapped into like older Oakland when I was a kid, like the older like my parents, um, you know, was around too short. Too short was a little younger than my dad and um, you know, that was kinda where he got his start, but then when I was in high school he was still tapped into the younger crowd, like he still made music, but he had old hits too that that your parents might know. So I would say too short. All right. Now, when if there's anybody out there who's still not taking Dame Dollar's project seriously, you've got Jamie Foxx, you've got Lil Wayne on a few of your tracks. Talk about how that came together. How did you get those guys to commit? Um, just from reaching out, I mean, I had known Jamie Foxx for, for a few years. Um, I had met Wayne uh, maybe a year before I, I put my album out where we was in, like, contact with each other. Um, but I, I just kind of reached out to people that I was a fan of. You know, and people that I wanted them to to hear my stuff and I wanted them to respect me as an artist. You know, I didn't want them to just say, oh, you know, there's an NBA player and we'll do a song with them. You know, I felt like the the people that I reached out to, they would they would only want to attach their name to something that was respectable. So that was that was just my main thing. All right. Now, Wayne's on the new single, Run It Up, which is yeah. out right now. It's part of the brand new full length that's going to drop this week called Confirmed. Yeah. Did yeah. you guys track that together or did he send in his part? How did that come down? Um, I actually sent it to him. Um, Scott Storch, I was in the studio with Scott Storch. He made the beat. Um, and also Verse Simmons, who wrote on the song on the for the hook. And um, we came up with, with that. I did my verse. I laid it down, and I sent it to Wayne. I already knew that I wanted to have Wayne on it. 
And uh, he sent it back. And then a few weeks later, I actually met him in the L.A. studio. And we just, you know, just messed around, listened to some music a little bit. But um, he sent his verse in to that song specifically. All right. So, like, when that came back, when he sent his back, what did that feel like? And then when he got in the studio, what was it like to work with him? I mean, when he sent it back, it was, you know, my expectations with him is always high. You know, I just, I'm just appreciative of the fact that, you know, he never just sent me a throwaway verse where it's just like, I'm just doing it to do it. He sent me quality verses, and I, I really appreciate that. But getting in the studio with him, you know, I didn't actually record when I was there. I just watched him, you know, listen to beat after beat, go in the booth a few times, just see how he operate. Um, you know, and it was impressive. You know, he was really, really sharp. Um, you know, I, I had heard a lot that he was a musical genius, and it definitely came off that way just being in the room with him. Yeah, so most of all, what did you learn from that time with him? What was your biggest takeaway from being with him in the studio? Um, I mean, when a lot of the beats came on, he was automatically saying, like, rapping lyrics to himself. Like, and if he rapped something, he was going in the booth and he was laying it down regardless of if he was going to keep it or not. He was going in there and he was just in the booth saying his stuff and, you know, just going from there. So, I mean, that was something that I wouldn't do in the past. You know, in Milwaukee last year, the Bucks fans were chanting SoundCloud rapper when you were on the line. I'm curious what you were thinking at that time. I mean, were you pissed? Did it make you laugh? Or were you like, these fools don't even know what they're saying because SoundCloud is actually known for breaking underground hip-hop artists more than anything else. So they may think they're getting over, but they're really not. Yeah, I mean, like during the game, I, I think I missed it during the game where I just kind of wasn't paying attention to it. I thought they was chanting something to their team because it wasn't clear in the arena. And then I saw a video of it. And they were saying SoundCloud rapper, and I just thought it was kind of funny because, like you said, SoundCloud's broken a lot of underground artists. Um, it's a great platform for up-and-coming artists to get their music out there, and I've used it when I first started putting music out. So, I mean, it, it was nothing for me to be ashamed of. Um, if anything, it was uh, fifteen to 20,000 people acknowledging the fact that they knew I rapped. So, <laughs> I mean, that was good news for me. You know it. You know it. So obviously, yeah. touring is really not a possibility right now with your basketball schedule, yeah. but you did jump on stage for your first show as Dame Dalla last summer yeah. at the Crystal Ballroom in Portland. What do you remember about that? What was that like? I mean, it was just a, it was a different high. You know, it was a great feeling. I, I did it on my birthday, and uh, I had a lot of my family there. It was a lot of, it sold out um, in like 45 minutes. The show sold out. It was a couple thousand people. Um. But the thing that stood out to me the most is I hadn't, at that time, I didn't have an album out. I had only had SoundCloud release songs, just freestyle type songs. And I was on stage, and if I stopped singing the songs, I put the put the mic to the crowd, and they actually knew the words. Oh. And that was kind of what inspired me to just continue to push forward as a as an artist. You know, I was that really was a good feeling for me. I bet that felt great. Now, listen, you're used to the big stage. You want yeah. the big stage. You live on the big stage. But were you nervous when you hit that stage for the first time? Um, I would. I wasn't really nervous. Um, you know, I just didn't know. I just didn't know how to command the stage. I wasn't sure what what it was going to be like because I had only been on stage one time and I rapped on with one of my cousins on a song that I rapped with him. And I just was up there for a few minutes and left. But. Um, I wasn't nervous. I didn't know what to expect. You know, I just I saw a lot of a lot of Damian Lillard jerseys in the crowd. Um, a lot of people that I was excited, so that kind of took away from the, the possibility of me getting too nervous. Hmm. You know, you're not using profanity. Now, the thing is, profanity, man, it works. I mean, Damian, shit, I do it here all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you not doing it when you know it sells and it could work for you? Uh, I mean, it might be able to work for me, but I don't. 
it's really not my personality to, you know, go around and just every other word be a cuss word or to have to say cuss words to get my point across. So um, that and is, and also just the fact that I know a lot of youth uh, follow me, you know, from Instagram to Twitter to just my following as as a whole. You know, I know a lot of that is youth. You know, they take a, a liking to my story of being underappreciated and kind of um, rising to a, a level of stardom. You know, I know that I, I have a lot of young people following me, and it's a lot of words that I could give them uh, through my music that, that just doesn't require cuss words. Um, you know, it's, it's just what it, what it's turned into. Respect. I've got nothing but respect for that. Yeah. Listen, one more thought about that. Are you looking to write, when you write, are you looking to write and track, you know, so-called club bangers, or are you in it for something else? Are you in it for a different reason? No, I think um, a lot of people that, you know, say I'm trying to get a club banger, I want, you know, this kind of song or that kind of song, they're trying to make a hit so then, you know, their career can explode or they can make a certain amount of money. Um, and for me, I, I've made plenty of money as an athlete, and um, that's with my team and through endorsements. So, you know, music is a, just strictly a passion of mine to where, um, you know, I'm not trying to use to say, oh, I need to be in the club. I'm just trying to put out quality music. You know, some of my favorite artists, you know, J. Cole, uh, Kendrick Lamar, Nas, you know, they, they've they had great careers. Nas is a, one of the best ever. J. Cole and Kendrick will be named one you know, two of the best to, to ever do it. And you don't hear a lot of their music in the club. You know, they're putting out quality music and they got huge, huge fan bases that's going to be around, you know, in 20 years, you know, the, the, with the timeless music. So that's kind of what I'm more of a fan of. What do you think of uh, Kendrick's new album? Oh, I thought it was great. I still listen to it. I love it. I love all his albums. Mm -hmm. All right, so let me ask you about some basketball before you go. I mean, shortly after Golden State beat or beat you guys in the playoffs, you told ESPN that you were obsessed with finding a way to get through those guys. Yeah. Was that some heat-of-the-moment stuff, or did that stay with you the entire offseason? No, I mean, when I say things, I, it's not just – I don't let my emotions – um, take over me, you know, when somebody asks me a question, I, I just answer it from from how I feel. And, you know, I, I think everybody should feel that way. You know, you got guys um, teaming up because they want to be, they want to have enough firepower to beat Golden State. And everybody knows that, you know, they're going to be one, one of the best teams in the league, if not the best team, um, off of the talent and the way that their talent plays together and the, the brand of basketball that they play. So, um, it's clearly on everyone else's mind too that you know that's what they want to get done. But me, I want to, I want to be the one to do it. You know, everybody kind of shows them the respect um, of being that top dog, which they deserve. They've earned it. Um, but for me, as a competitor, I want to want to knock them off that. So that's kind of what what I'm obsessed with sure. <laughs> as a player. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's why you're in it. So what yeah. about this notion of super teams? Super teams are they good or are they bad for the NBA? I mean, I don't know. I mean, you can't say it's good or bad. Um, you know, it's competition, and that's that's one thing that won't change. And, um, you know, guys want to team up and guys want to, you know, give themselves a better chance to win it all, then, you know, it's not illegal. It's not against the rules or it wouldn't be done. So um, I don't think it's good or bad, but, you know, for any, any competitor, I think it just raises the level of, know of your competitiveness hey listen i don't begrudge anybody if you're a free agent and that's where the market is set up and you want to take a shot someplace else like you feel like i want to live in a different town or i want to go work in a different town 
I, I'm all about that. I've got no issue with that whatsoever. Yeah. But yeah. if you were to put yourself, say, in Kevin Durant's shoes, say you were in OKC for like eight years and you did everything you possibly could, and then you got a shot to chance to go or a chance to go to a juggernaut like Golden State, would you personally have done what he did? Before I answer that question, <laughs> sure. because every time I get asked this question, I end up being a headline or something. So I'll say this. Kevin Durant can make whatever decision he wants to. He's a, If he's a free agent, that means he's free to go wherever he wants to go. Me personally, I'm never joining um, a team of stars. Like, I, I just could never do it, especially one that's won a championship and um, has it just eliminated me. Um, you know, I I just couldn't see myself doing it. I would I would want to beat them. You know, I wouldn't want to beat the the top team that just went seventy three and nine or whatever they went. I wouldn't want to join that. I would I would rather beat them than than to join them. Now at the same time, I'm sure you would tell me, hey, look, I, we got something good going here. I've got CJ here. I've got some other teammates I respect and admire. We have a yeah. good thing going here. And in fact, I spoke to him last week, and CJ was talking to me about how. He had reached out to Paul George and Carmelo Anthony. I know you did the same thing. Did you feel like you had a legitimate shot at either one or both of them coming to join forces with you? I did. I felt like we had a, a chance to get uh, PG. Um, and I, I thought, you know, we were to the point where we were very close to getting Melo. But, I mean, it, it, it is what it is. They didn't land here, and um, it's not personal. You know, it's, they ended up somewhere else, and... It happened to be on the same team. But, you know, like you said, I'm happy with what we have. I'm happy with, you know, playing alongside CJ and Nurk and um, Evan Turner and all our guys that we have here. And we're going to, when we get on the floor, we're going to put our best foot forward and we're going to see how it goes. You know, we we always going to step out there and feel like we got a chance to win. Listen, is there something about Portland and the Blazers that free agents, potential free agents, don't know, but you want them to know about? I mean, I think people think about Portland and they like, man, it's, who goes to Portland or what's – and for me, I'm from Oakland. You know, I'm from the Bay Area. So um, I've lived in Utah and um, now living in Portland, and I love it here. You know, I stay here year-round. It's a – you know, whatever you're looking for, you can find it here. Of course, it's not a New York City or L.A., but, you know, it's a it's a quality city, a great place to live, a great place to have a family. Um, but most importantly, these fans here – you know, the the one thing they care about that's dear to, to everyone's heart in this state is the Portland Trailblazers and the support shows. So, um, you know, we basketball players, so in a basketball environment, we want it to be A1, and I think that's what it is here. Now, there were reports that you want to come in the season at 190 pounds, and you've gone full-blown vegan, yeah. and you've dropped five pounds, Damien, in a month. That's not easy for anybody building muscle every day in the weight room. Are you still vegan, and what's that been like? Yeah, I am still vegan. Um, you know, in the summer when I decided to to go vegan, I was trying to get my playing weight down to 190 to be lighter, um, easier on my joints, easier on my feet. I had some some foot issues over the past two seasons, and um, I got I'm all the way down to 191 right now. So um, started at 202 in the middle of the summer, and you know I worked my way down 11 pounds. So I feel great. Um, it's going well. Um, it's a lot easier when you have a chef cooking the food for you because it's not it's not as convenient as going to Wendy's or something like that, you know, to to get a vegan meal. So, um, and fortunate for me, Portland has a lot of great vegan restaurants. So, I mean, it's been working out for me. So, you feel like once you hit that number, might you go back to what you were doing before, or do you feel like this is gonna be a long term thing? 
No, I can see it being a long term thing because it's not it's not the hard part was um the break in, you know, just giving everything up. And now I'm to the point where I, I eat what I eat and um, you know, it's not it doesn't taste bad, you know, it's stuff that I, I get satisfaction from eating. I'm not just eating nasty stuff to be healthy. You know, I've I've learned more and I've found, you know, stuff that I like. So I mean it's going smooth. I could I could stick to it. Hmm. Before I let you go, you know, you and I started the conversation and you were saying, look, I, I'm an athlete and I got a lot of passion for that, but I can do other things. Yeah. I have an interest in other things, you know, which brings me back to like something we've been talking quite a bit about on our show. What is your reaction to the whole stick to sports and just play the game crowd? You know, that whole you're lucky to be doing what you're doing. We're really not interested in what you have to say. So just entertain us. I mean, I know you've heard every version of that and even more. What do you think when you hear that and how does that make you feel? I mean, it's, that's unfortunate because, you know, who are, who is anybody to tell us we lucky to be where we are? We work, we earn this. You know, millions and millions of people um, as children, they want to be NBA players. They want to be NFL. They want to be in the major leagues. And only a certain amount of people actually can get that done, you know, based off of a lot of hard work, a lot of time spent, you know, a lot of a lot that we have invested in in this career and uh we get to to make it here because of what decisions we made and time that we spent so nobody can take that away from us you know we we did that you know that's credit to our um our parents for giving us you know the right the right tools you know the right height and the right length and athleticism and stuff like that but also how they raised us you know the character the foundation they built to allow us to be the kind of people that we were, that gave us a chance to be professional athletes, um, you know, but a lot of us are educated as well. We smart, you know, we can do other things. You got guys that want to act, you got guys that want to rap, produce, um, guys that might want to be a politician, they might want to be a trainer, a doctor, whatever they want to do, a mayor, anything. If that's what they decide to do, then that's what they decide to do, but nobody's telling people, you know, work one job. If somebody has two jobs, I mean, they have those two jobs for a reason. So the same should go for us. You know, we you can't tell us only play basketball, don't worry about anything else. You know, because our careers may last twelve years. If you lucky to be Kobe Bryant twenty years. Some guys get three years on their rookie deal and they done. And when it don't work out for them then what? When you get hurt and then what? You know, so I mean it, it's unfair but you know, a lot of the people that say those things are people that are, are bitter, you know, maybe about their own situation, which is also unfortunate. But, you know, we had a right to do whatever we please. In other words, don't tell us what we can and can't do. Don't tell right. us how to think. And then on top of that, what do you make of the president spending as much time on football and basketball as he is? I mean, it just don't make sense to me. You know, I think it's much bigger issues than, um, you know, guys – um, protesting and, and taking a, a knee during the national anthem of the football games. Obviously, the reason that they're taking the knee is a big deal, but there's things going on across the country in the streets, um, things that needs to be addressed that hasn't been addressed. Um, you know, and to talk about basketball and football, um, you know, it's just it's, it's crazy to me that that that's been the the topic of discussion when there's so many so many more issues um that haven't been addressed
you know, finally, in, in terms of things going on in the streets, you had your fifth annual Damian Lillard Brookfield picnic on September 9th in East Oakland, yeah. and that's where it all started for you. But I would imagine when you go home now, you grew up there, you probably saw a lot of things in the streets when you were growing up and probably didn't process it or give it a lot of thought. When you go home now and you see these things in the streets that you're talking about right now, yeah. what do you think? I mean, it's, when like growing up, I, you know, I was around a lot of things that I, I knew I knew what it was, and then some stuff, I got older, and I was like, man, you know, that's how it was. I didn't even know that this meant that, or that meant this, you know what I'm saying? So um, now that you're an adult, you know a lot of things come back to you, and you have a better understanding for it. But um, coming from there and being an NBA player, I also realized the impact that I, I could have on a lot of the kids there. I, I realized the um, responsibility that I have to, to give hope. Um, to show people the way, because a lot of times they don't have the resources, they don't have the um, the guidance to help them go the right way, you know, uh, opposite of what's right in front of them. So, um, again, it's sad to see, but I understand uh, the role that I play in, in in making it better and, you know, my responsibility in it. You know, I wonder, a youngster came up to you, maybe uh, he was seven, maybe he was eight, and he said, quote, are you really from Brookfield? Yeah. yeah did, did it make you kind of laugh, or was it kind of sad? What did you think when you heard that? I mean, I really wasn't sure how to react to it, because, like, if I, me being from that neighborhood, if there was ever anybody from that neighborhood that made it to the NFL or the NBA or anybody, I would know. I would be proud, like Dave, he was from my neighborhood. Any opportunity I got, I would mention it. And, you know, the fact that this kid really asked me was I from there, and, you know, I'm probably the most famous person. I actually am the most famous person to ever live in that neighborhood. So it was just like, it just show you how, you know, maybe they don't have a TV at home. You know, maybe he don't have a cell phone. Maybe he don't get on the Internet. He Maybe he just has no idea. He's probably heard my name, but he, you know. A lot of the the adults that lived in that neighborhood and had kids in that neighborhood that I played with, you know, have moved away because of um, gentrification and um, couldn't afford to to live there anymore. And you know, there's not as many kids outside, so you're not at at you know other people's houses anymore and, and learning about them. So it's just different, you know. And it, you know, I couldn't be mad at them, um, but it was just definitely something that that uh, opened my eyes up. Mm. Last thought then, too. I mean, there have been some amazing ballers from Oakland. I can mention any number of guys. But let me ask you about one guy in particular. I was at UC Santa Barbara when Brian Shaw went there. He was a legend at UC Santa Barbara because we just didn't have that kind of rep. I'm curious, what kind of rep did B. Shaw have as a baller and a guy in that neighborhood? I mean, not, not specifically your neighborhood, but in Oakland. What was he thought of? Uh, I mean, everybody always had a lot of love and respect for B. Shaw. You know, I remember being younger and a lot of the – the names you were here, you were here Jason Kidd. You were here Antonio Davis. You were here Gary Payton. Um, you were here about all the, Bill Russell. You were here about, you know, all of the main names that, that anybody would say. You know, but my dad always mentioned B. Shaw. And, you know, just the, the person that B. Shaw was, the route that B. Shaw had to go, going to a small school. Um, I think he didn't, I don't think B. Shaw played varsity until maybe his junior year or senior year. Uh, just under under appreciated, you know, never not mentioned all the time. Um, and, like, that's who, out of all of them, that's who I, I've got the, the strongest relationship with is B. Shaw. Um, 
you know, so he, I mean, just he, he deserves a lot more credit than he gets as a guy coming from Oakland and being in the NBA. I love hearing you say that. I really appreciate that you've got that kind of respect for him. Yeah. All right, Damien, so, like, when's the second album drop exactly? My second album, Confirmed, is coming out October 6th. Um, I'm excited about it. It's going to be uh, levels up from the first one, so I'm I'm really proud of the work we did. We got some good features, some great production, and, um, you know, it's a bigger push behind this one. So hopefully, you know, people people really uh, like the music. Damien Lillard, Dame Dalla. If you've got a problem with that man, that's not on him. That's on you. Just like if you've got a problem with Brian Koppelman, that's not on Cop. That's on you. Because I've known Brian Koppelman for a long, long time. Back to when he and his creative partner, David Levine, were taking the world by storm after Rounders kickstarted the entire poker explosion. And since then, every time our paths have crossed, I have left the conversation smarter than when it started and always ready for the very next one. I finally tracked Brian down in New York on the set of his hit show, Billions. And in the chaos of show running a smash TV series, he found the time to let loose on the events of the day. The life choices he's made that led him to Hollywood and his love for Jimmy Connors and the U.S. Open. Ah, man, I've been so looking forward to having this conversation with you. I mean, the... The news out of out of Vegas, the tragedy does put a damper on the conversation. I think, in a way, obviously today, I'm sure you're dealing with it as you think about all this stuff. Um, but I have to say, um, as you know, I'm a huge fan of yours and uh, know you a little bit, and so I'm excited to to talk to you. Ryan, you are the best. It is so good to hear your voice. I'm so glad we could finally do this, and I've been thinking about you for a long time, and obviously watching you very closely. I'm so glad we could spend some time. And you know, you're right. Because as we're starting this, we are taping this on a Monday afternoon, and it's less than 24 hours after the Las Vegas shooting. And I don't want to spend all of our time together talking about that, but I do want to ask you, Brian, as an artist, as a writer, as a director, what kind of thoughts do you have about what happened? You know, it's devastating. I mean, my first thought, and it's probably thoughts 1 through 20, are just for these people. And I just turned to David Levine, my partner on Billions and lifelong best friend, and I was like, Man, you think about the callous indifference, the life that this fucker had who, who pulled the trigger. And you think of these 50 people who were killed, all the relatives of those people. You could just cascade it out and understand that to do something this monstrous is beyond the pale. Jim, it's not really something we can even comprehend, the mind of somebody who would do something like that. And then... Listen, as a liberal Democrat and as somebody who's looked at this stuff for a long time, I'm not an expert, but I do think that semi-automatic weapons are too easy to get. I wish there was some way the country could rally around that, you know, um, without just immediately thinking, hey, these people want to take all our guns. It's just tragedy after tragedy occurs. And if you are um, a thinking person, you have to at least put on the table this question. And the question is, what would the what would our country look like if it were harder to get these weapons that can cause this kind of damage in this short a time, right? Nine-second bursts that end up with 500 injured and 50 dead. To me, that's just common sense to engage in the conversation. Again, I'm no expert, and primarily, um, I'm sad, and, and when you're sad, you, you I'm sad, and I'm, you know, I want to solve a problem. I, I would love to try to figure out a way to solve the problem. I, I imagine that your thoughts aren't that far from 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 where I am. No, Brian, they're not. They're not. I mean, there's certainly, there's something wrong here. I mean, I don't, I don't know how many times I've said 
thoughts and prayers go out to and then had to insert <laughs> the name of a place where multiple people were shot and killed because something happened like this in a school or a movie theater or a club or just out in public. I mean, there's something wrong here. There has to be a conversation. Brian, let me ask you this. I mean, you've got kids, and I've somebody brought this up on my program and said, what are we supposed to do? Can I send my kids to a festival like this? Can I send my kids to a concert gym? What are you telling your kids? What are you telling your family? I mean, what do we do? Do we say you can't go there? Do we say that you can go there? There's nothing to be worried about when there clearly is something to be worried about? What's the conversation you're having with your family? It's a, yeah, I mean, that is a really fascinating line, line of inquiry, right? The, the short answer that you want to say is, well, you can't. It's such a glib phrase we all say, right? The terrorists can't win, so you can't restrict um, where you go, and you can't allow people. Even though this guy, you know, I think this is an act. Um, I, I, you know, to me, he terrorized all these people. But in 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 general, I don't want to restrict their their freedom of movement. My kids are probably older than yours, twenty one and seventeen. So I I can't, you know, what am I going to say? I can advise and, and counsel. But my twenty one year old, he's a college senior, but he's already. Um, working and he travels sometimes and uh of course i worry about it but the truth is you and i we've gone to a million events you've covered a million events i've gone to them i've been in them uh and i don't want to shy away you know look las vegas you think about las vegas and the impact that that place has had on my work my partner and my work that's a place that that has um you know aired up some kind of crazy dream in me 25 years ago or however long ago more and has always been this uh, kind of um, magic in my ima- I know the, the real Las Vegas and the grime and the grit of it, but in my imagination and in our work, you know, it's such an alive, romantic place of infinite possibility and an incredible uh, opportunity for cons and fun grift and, you know, all the stuff that's been in our uh, movies. And I'm, I'm heartbroken about it. You know, I guess one of my kids said they wanted to go to Las Vegas uh, tomorrow. Um, like you always do as a parent, even when they say they want to go to the corner store, right? You just kind of like hold it. You go, oh, sure, because you don't want to give them your right, – you don't want to pass your own neuroses onto them. But then at home, you're, you're like counting down the minutes till they arrive safe. That's... I mean, you still live in California, right? Yes, I do. I do. So does it freak – are your kids old enough to drive? Yeah, so I'm getting, Brian, now my oldest son, Jake, is a junior in high school. He's got his license. He's got a car right now. Yeah, I mean, he just went to a concert in Los Angeles. He just went to a UCLA football game. So yeah. he's in that thing right now. And he, he does these things, and they're incredible opportunities and moments for him. And I don't want to take that away. But, you know, to your point about what you and David have done in Las Vegas, it's so true. I talked about it on the show, and I think that it resonates because although you never want something like this to happen anywhere to anybody at any time, we all identify with Vegas because we've all been there so many times and have had such great memories. But you look at your life and your career and what Vegas has meant to you, I could certainly see how that resonates with you and David. It does, yeah. I mean, that's the thing, you know. Um, from when even in 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 Rounders, our first movie, we reference it as the the mecca, you know, of this stuff. Even the movie takes place in the East Coast. I mean, that's where Matt wants to go because it is, in a way, a holder of so many of a certain kind of dream. And it changes uh, over time. Plus, like you, I have good friends who live out there. And again, I don't want to make it geographical, and I don't want to take this whole conversation to this place. But it, but but to ignore the fact that underlying this conversation is a uh, heavy sadness and a heavy, you know, this thing I've been feeling since this guy got elected, which is this underlying kind of a- anxiety in the country, which is how are we going to muddle through this without tearing each other apart? Look, I, my feelings on Trump don't matter, but I see our country so the most divided and the lines drawn the most clearly that they've ever been. 
And again, it creates a kind of uh, heaviness, I think. I'm sure you hear it all the time uh, in, in the people that you interact with. Nobody, none of us, not me either, none of us feel, seem like we can have a reasonable conversation anymore. It's hard. It is very hard. I don't think there's any question about that. I want to talk to you about Billions because it's been an absolute yes. smash on Showtime. It's a brilliant program, in my opinion. You and David Levine obviously can pick very carefully what you want to take on, what projects you want to work on. So what inspired this show, and what was it about the subject matter that interests you? Yeah, David and I have long been fascinated with by this world um, of billionaires and of United States attorneys because uh, the U.S. attorney has just this incredible amount of power and uh, ability to uh, choose what cases they want to take on and what cases they don't. And billionaires are like nation states. You know, they move through the world in a way that very few can. And we wanted to, you know, we had access into this world. We've been thinking about it for a long time. And we've always, throughout our career, loved worlds, insular worlds that kind of had a language of their own and a customs of their own and a culture that was clearly defined and not one that most people can see into. And this show allows us the opportunity to dive into that world, to work with these staggeringly great actors, right? And to um, be able to put anything that we're thinking about or that we've seen in the world or that we've read or that we've watched um, out there into the mouths of these characters. And Showtime has given us this incredible amount of creative freedom. We make exactly the show that we want to make. Um, and uh, with exactly the people we want to make it, it is no doubt about it, the, the creative high point of our career. You know, we've, I would say if you look at Rounders and Ocean's 13 to talk about these Vegas-ish things, gambling world, our movie Solitary Man and this, um, it, it's, it's really incredible to us that we've gotten to uh, tell these stories. And and I would throw, if you're a sports guy, I mean, I would throw the Jimmy Connors documentary we made in there, too, which is another example of looking at uh, a world and a kind of character that we seem drawn to over and over again, the kind of person who has a tremendous amount of, of sort of a desire to self-determine the path of their lives and who doesn't want to live by ordinary um, rules. And, you know, in, in, in some odd way, I think you can look at a bunch of our characters, including Jimmy Connors, as cut from similar cloth. Well, I think so. Connors is one of my favorite subject matters. But I wonder, if this is the creative high point, I mean, obviously a lot of that has to do with the subject matter. A lot of that has to do with the people you're working with. A lot of that has to do with having a great partner to work with, because you know that if you don't have the right partner, it changes the show. But here's something, Brian, I'm really curious about. What about the making of the show? How much of this has to do with the fact that you didn't actually pitch this show to Showtime or anybody else? If you didn't pitch it, why didn't you pitch it? And if you didn't pitch it, how did it get sold? Yeah, we didn't pitch it. We wrote it. We just decided to write the pilot. And um, because we'd gone through this experience, and look, everyone in their lives has had various professional disappointments and highs and lows, and you being in the industry you're in, understand this shit more than anybody, right. uh, how this stuff all works. You put your dreams into something, and sometimes it goes great, and sometimes uh, you know the wrong executive is in charge, and it's shit. Um, we just decided to take matters into our own hands um, and wrote the pilot and then basically said to people, if you want to buy this, you have to commit to making it, at least the pilot. And Showtime really stepped up huge and together helped us cast Damien and Paul and Maggie Siff and Malin and helped us to be able to, you know, make the thing. And luckily we made a good pilot. I mean, I'm talking to you now 
from uh, this trailer we have right outside a set and uh, on stage is, you know, right now actually on a, a location. Giamatti is, I mean, what could be better than having Paul Giamatti say words that you and your lifelong best friend uh, wrote for him? Uh, if I weren't incredibly happy about that, uh, I'd be a really fucked up dude. Brian, what, by the way, what's that like? What's it like to see Damian Lewis, Paul Giamatti, Maggie Siff, and the likes perform what you guys write? To see the actors not only perform those things, but take your ideas and words and make them their own. What's that like to see that play out? Well, that's really smart, Jim. Uh, Romy, that's why you're the best. Yeah, I'm fucking smart, Brian. Dude, because when they, we were talking about this with Paul recently, this magical thing happens when you give a great actor these words and these ideas without even changing a word of what you've written. They completely make it their own and they elevate it. They take this thing that on paper maybe worked or maybe some people it kind of worked. And suddenly you not only believe it, but you're completely invested in it because of what they bring, whether that's just a look in their eyes or the way they move into the room. You know, an actor, you, you walk onto the set. And the actors find, when people talk about the actors finding a scene, you're standing there with the director and it's Dave and me and the actors and that's it. Always we have a, an early morning rehearsal each day before we shoot anything. And we don't tell the actors where to stand. They come and find it. And as they find, oh, I think I'd move here. Hey, what do you think when I grab this drink? Suddenly the whole thing comes to life. And it's ne- this part of it has never gotten boring for us. In fact, it's even somehow as we get older, that part becomes even more special. Watching this um, alchemy that happens when the camera's in the right place and the right actor is saying this stuff and the words are right, um, it's really incredibly elevating. I mean, it, it, if, it, like I say, man, if that doesn't fire your endorphins, you're probably dead. Now, good for you guys. You guys so deserve it and so earned it, and it, it's an amazing thing. But, Brian, there's so many other things, too. Like, I, I love that you have a podcast. In fact, you've been at that way longer than I've been at this. Talk to me about the podcast. You call it The Moment. Sure. Why is it called The Moment? Which moment are you speaking of? I'm really interested in these moments in people's lives that are what I call inflection points. The moment when... Everything could have gone one way or it could have gone another way. Like the moment that Dave and I had when we decided, okay, we're going to write this thing. We've had too many times of pitching a script, the network taking the script, and then nothing happening with it. And so how do you process low moments or moments when things go well? So I get people like Seth Meyers or Mario Batali or Byron Davis to talk about um, these kind of moments in their lives. And I've always been fascinated by this shit. And so I just started having these conversations a few years ago. And now I think I've done probably 250 episodes of the podcast wow. and I have a great relationship with the audience. And I, it, people write me all the time telling me that um, it really inspires them to hear that uh, it's, you know, the goal of the show is to help people find um, their most creative part of themselves and figure out a way to let it live. And through these conversations that happens and so many people have like written things or um, accomplished some crazy goal as a result of hearing what one of my guests said, which makes me, you know, obviously feel great. So, Brian, is it a single moment, or are there a number of moments like that in your life? And if I were to ask you, what was your moment? There are a number of them, uh, I think. I try, you know, and and I will say in the beginning of the po- of the thing, you'll see as your podcast changes as you as you do it. I was very strict about the moment in the beginning of the of when I started it, and now I'm happy to just let the flow of the conversation happen and like kind of discover the moments as we go. in In my own life, I'm a very I'm simple in lots of ways. You know, it was. Um, certainly like the birth of my first child because it's what made me become it's what made me look myself in the mirror and be like 
I want to be a father who's happy when he comes home from work so he can tell his kid, you know, you chase your dreams. I wasn't chasing mine. And that's when I went to my best friend, Dave, and I said, we have to write a script together. I have to change. I have to change my life. And he was like, all right, man, you got to commit to it eight, eight o'clock in the morning every day. And soon thereafter, I walked into a poker club, called him in the middle of the night and said, I know what the thing should be about. And we then wrote rounders together. And I mean, I think that that has everything that one of these moments needs to have. I was miserable uh, at, at work. I felt I wasn't going to be a good dad. My son, which was a joyous thing, came into our lives. And then uh, my best friend helped lift me out of it. And together, we've been on this, you know, over 20-year ride. So that, and, and I think that, you know, I can tell that story slower and longer. And over the podcast, it comes out. And it's that kind of thing that, like, almost everybody has. You know, I'm sure you have the moment you were in a small market and things either went well or they didn't well before you became Jim Rowe. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've got a lot of moments like that. But the thing is, like, you had a job. You had a gig that I think most of us would kill for. You started in the music business. You were a producer. You were an executive. You were the one who discovered and signed Tracy Chapman. You were the one that helped arrange Eddie Murphy's first record deal, which is probably a podcast in and of itself. So you had this great deal, but then you moved to something else. But I do want to ask, because I'm fascinated about that part of your life. I hate to be, Brian, the get-off-my-lawn old man and say that everything was better back then because it wasn't. But music was, right? I mean, when we were in college, it was... Uh, No, there's still amazing music. Can I tell you, you when I was in college, when I worked in college radio, when R.E.M. and the Violent Femmes hit the scene, and we loved all the British stuff, like The Jam and The Clash, my favorite band to this day is still The Replacements. I mean, tell me I'm wrong when I say this. All that shit was better back then, wasn't it? Uh, Look, I could name every member of all those bands that you just said, but that's not... I mean, like you know, I could name Tommy and... Paul, and I can do the whole thing. Who's could do? I'm as you right. are. Uh, I'm sure. I'm very sad that Grant Hart died the other day. Right. Sure. I mean, I'm. I love that music, but um, to me, I can go put on a car seat headrest record. And, I mean, REM is my favorite band of all time, but I can put on a car seat headrest record, a Jason Isbell record, uh, an Amy Matt. There's still great music out there, but the, the, I think the, the takeaway to to what you just said is true. Right. I had a job that, by all outside standards, should have one would think should have made me happy. But what I'm really fascinated by is the story we tell ourselves. And the truth is, I could have just kind of bobbed along in a a fine, you know, I had a fine car and like I was paid a decent, you know, better than decent, like a good, uh, I made a lot of money. And, and, um, but I knew inside a part of me was like crumbling and dying every day. And it didn't matter that the position was one that had like status attached to it because I forced myself to like, look at where I really was. It, it didn't matter. None of that, none of that mattered. When I became alive every day, like it was when I was home and hugging my kid and then my second kid and my wife. And when Dave and I were in there writing together, when we were writing, I was a different person and I was alive and excited. And that was the two hours of the day that meant the most to me. And I, so I knew that's the, that's what I have to fucking do. And the other thing doesn't matter. And even if I'm not as successful, this gives me a chance at some deeper level of satisfaction. And I think that if people look at their lives that way, it's important. I didn't quit my job in a huff. I didn't like um, throw away my life. I didn't say like, oh, this money's evil. I was just like, I'm not happy here enough. So I have to work really diligently every day to give myself another choice. And that's what I did. And so it kind of doesn't matter what the gig I had was. It doesn't matter if you're selling cars and making $150,000 a year, and everyone's looking at you in the neighborhood like um, you've got it the best, if you know that what you really want to do is become a pro bowler and you gave up that dream five years ago, 
you know, start getting up really early in the morning and throwing the ball at the lanes again because we go around this earth one fucking time. So we better try to grab onto everything we have. No, you knew. You knew. Just like other people know, but they still don't do anything about it because it's scary and it's hard. And then 30 years down the road, you're like, well, why didn't I try that? I could have tried that, and I didn't, and you guys did. So then the first script, of course, was Rounders, which you've talked about a couple of times. You wrote that in the mid-'90s. What kind of feedback did you and David first get from that when you were shopping it around town? Yeah, Dave and I got rejected all over the place in the beginning. I have a, a blog. I don't ever write on it, BrianCobbleman.com. But on there, I do tell this story if someone wants to hear it in more depth. But we got totally rejected, smoked by all these agencies that said, um, one guy would say it's overwritten, the next guy said it's underwritten, and then after Harvey Weinstein bought it, every one of those agents tried to sign us, which was a great lesson. Because as you know, other than one or two people who might intersect, you know, come into your life, um, all these people just like, it's easier for them to say no and not have to worry about your dreams. So that's why you have to be the guardian of your own dreams. Yeah, so by the way, it, it can't be both overwritten and underwritten. And by no, the way, man, what, is, I, what does that even I mean? I don't even know what any of those terms mean. Yeah, what's man? that mean? They have no meaning. I don't know what that means. I still don't know. All right, so you know what I did do though when um, so I because it was the beginning. I wrote down every rejection at, when I would hear it, and then later when those guys all tried to sign us on the phone, I would read them what they rejected <laughs> me for. Right. Right. I'd be like, you're the guy who said it was overwritten. And the guy would go, no, 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 that was my assistant. Uh, that was a professional reader. I never read the script. It was great. It was oh. great fun for a week. Great town. Well, listen, so you've got a lot of people listening right now that <laughs> know your background, know your story, and want to grind through it. Fact of the matter is, I mean, this is all beautiful, but it doesn't change the bottom line. It's a tough game. It's a tough town. You guys have experienced this. It's a business of rejection. So how do you approach it, and how do you deal with it? Yeah, it's a business of rejection. It's true. You know, um, there isn't an easy answer to it. Rejection hurts each time, but over time, um, it it stings a little bit less, and it stings for a shorter period of time. I mean, look, it's never fun when someone says this thing that you've given so much to doesn't work for them, and we all try to put it in language that's nicer language or easier language, but the truth of the matter is um, it, it always it always feels like a little bit like a punch to the nose, but like a boxer who trains, you know, the more you get hit, first of all, you learn to block them. Some you'll, you'll learn uh, to bob and weave to get away from. And uh, then you start to learn to counter punch, uh, hopefully. And maybe you land a hook or two. And, and really, even though I'm speaking in these metaphors, it's true. Uh, you just got to keep going. I find the trick that works for me is to write every single day, but that's limited to like a writer. But if you're doing some other thing, as long Tony Robbins says this thing, I'm a, I'm a real um, Dave and I executive produced the Tony Robbins documentary. I'm not your guru, and I think a lot of what Tony says is really smart. And he says that as long as people, as long as you feel like you're making progress, you are, have a chance to feel happy. And so, if while you're dealing with rejection, each day you're taking some step forward, it can be a private internal step. You're doing something to achieve a greater goal. It makes the rejections just slightly have slightly less impact sure that makes sense to you? that does make sense to me that does make sense to me because you're moving towards something you're getting better every single day regardless you mentioned the 30 30 for jimmy connors as somebody who grew up near the national tennis center what yes. did the u.s open mean to you everything man i i worked there as a kid from like 16 17 18 and um it was like i other than this stuff that i do now the greatest job i ever had and uh, I could go early in the morning, and back then there was very little security. You could hit on the tennis courts. You could sneak into the player locker rooms. And 
um, I just lived at that place for those two weeks uh, whenever the Open was uh, coming to town. And uh, those athletes were just so incredible. You know, tennis is such a hard thing to be. And I played high school tennis. I played number two on my high school team. So I had some understanding of how hard it was, the thing that they were doing, just standing there alone. And the era that I was a kid for was, uh, you know, this incredible era of tennis. You know, uh, I watched Connors, I watched Borg, I watched Lendl, I watched Johnny Mack. Um, I, I loved all those guys. And, and I didn't love Lendl. Nobody's ever loved Ivan Lendl. No, never. But all the rest of those guys I loved. And, you know, I could go deep and Yannick Noah and, and Christine and Arias and um, that whole, you know, all that stuff, Bill, Bill Jean King and Yvonne Gulagang. And uh, there was something about uh, what tennis meant then to American kids because they're these great American tennis players. And so for us to be able to go back to 1991 and tell that story about Connors uh, at the Open was fucking magical. And, you know, the reaction to that 30 for 30, Rolling Stone said it was the fifth best one ever and of the 30 for 30s. And to tell that again, like a personal story because Connors, Mac, what those guys meant to us really mattered. And to have people react to it the way they did, you know, that thing ends with Jimmy Connors saying, uh, I'm an asshole, but at least I'm a happy asshole. And to get that on film, uh, I remember looking at Levine. We were sitting there at Connor's house in Santa Barbara and thinking, how did we get here, man? How is this our lives, you know? He was 38. He was nearly 39. He had undergone major wrist surgery the year before. You mentioned Santa Barbara. I was up there at that time working, living in Santa Barbara, because I went to UC Santa Barbara, and I started to play tennis with a guy named Rich Scheinberg, who was the orthopedic surgeon who did the surgery on his wrist prior to that. And yeah, and he said to me, do you want to talk to Jimmy? I think I can get an interview with Jimmy. When Jimmy didn't do stuff like that, I mean, he just didn't do shit like that at all. I said, I would love to. I talked to him, I think, at Santa Barbara City College on the track. Couldn't have done a better interview. And then he makes that miraculous run. Look, the guy was almost 39. He had nothing left. He you know, gets you know, all the he way to the semifinals. During the t- right. He turned 39 during the tournament. So it defies time, all logic. How do you explain crazy. that, Brian? How do you explain what he did in those 11 days? Well, he, you know, we do take this whole documentary to explain it. But he talked about just getting himself ready to stick in at the tournament. Right before that, he had gotten to the finals against Edberg and almost beat Edberg in the finals, this little tournament, the Hamlet out on Long Island. And he said in the finals against Edberg, he was broken twice, and he realized he could scramble and give everything he had to try to break back. But he felt it would be his last gasp, and he he was like, I'll try, but I'm not going to die for this because something in him told him he was just about ready to beat. And then it allowed him to save enough so that when he got behind two sets and two breaks to Patrick, or two sets and a break to Patrick, and when he got back down two sets and a break to Aaron, he had saved himself, and his wrist was finally strong enough to come back and, and beat those guys. And um, it is one of the great sporting accomplishments, even though he didn't win, uh, because, you know, all Connors was about was this kind of belief in his will and that he could will himself to defeat you. He could will himself to be more than you or better than you. And, you know, I haven't really thought about this connection between Connors and these guys on our show, but there is something about uh, that kind of guy that um, and woman in Wendy Rose that is endlessly fascinating because, you know, the ways we all maybe come up short because we care about too much about either what someone else might think or about other people 
or we allow our empathy to uh, override us. People like Jimmy Connors don't give a fuck about that. And, um, and so it's really fascinating to get such an up-close look at people like that, you know? My man, Cop, without question, one of the most thoughtful, talented guys that I've ever met. Thank you so much for listening to Episode 6 of the Jim Rohn Podcast. If you haven't done it already, you want to go back and give the other five a spin because if you did like this one, you're going to love the conversations that we've already had with Bob Costas, Aaron Rodgers, Dirk Nowitzki, Adam Carolla, and Kevin Frazier. But, uh, now you already know the drill about subscribing and reviewing and how much we appreciate all of that. But don't stop there. I'd love your feedback on Twitter, too. Hit me up at Jim Rome. Let me know what you think. Be sure to include the handles of any of the guests so they can see that too. And if you need something to get you through until next Tuesday, you can always check out our daily radio program every day, noon to 3 Eastern on CBS Sports Radio and streaming live on JimRome.com. Or catch it on demand via the Daily Jungle Podcast, also available through iTunes and Google Play. Again, thank you so much for listening and supporting. Episode 7 drops Tuesday the 10th. I will see you then. I am out. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.